You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hi, I'm Robin Whittaker. And I'm Sean Winter. And today we're looking at readings for the third Sunday in Lent. Uh, We're going to spend some time looking at Exodus chapter 17, uh, 1 to 7, Romans 5, 1 to 11, and John 4, verses 5 to 42. And uh, Robin, I think uh, the idea is that we're going to start back to front this week and start off with the Gospel. Yes, we are. Partly because I'm really excited because this is the Gospel reading that inspired Fran and I to call this podcast By the Well because we see here, as we see all over the scriptural tradition, um, significant conversations happen by the well. And in this case, you know, living water and testimony and the revealing of Jesus' identity are at least some of the things that are happening in this story, which is typical Johannine. It really is, kind of an extended discourse with all sorts of layers of meaning and um, ambiguity and uh, conversation in which people are talking to each other and past each other in in very interesting ways. Um, It's striking that it's a a passage about Jesus' encounter with a a woman, which is a kind of, um, it stands Mm. out as the most significantly described encounter with a woman probably in the gospel tradition itself. So how does that fit in the kind of plan of these opening chapters of John's gospel, do you think? Well, I think we firstly need to see it in direct contrast with what we had in the lectionary last week, which is Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus, who's introduced as a Jewish leader, who should be this learned, you know, he's in the heart of Judaism. And, I mean, we've got a few parallels. John's very clever. You know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Mm -hmm. Uh, This woman will be broad middle of the day. Um, You know, she's a Samaritan, which is an outsider. She's a woman opposed to a Jewish leader, etc. So we immediately see a contrast here. And and John will play with the fact that in that Nicodemus story, Jesus says a whole lot of things and Nicodemus doesn't get it. He poses questions and Jesus says to him, how can you, a teacher in Israel, not understand these things? Whereas here we'll see... You know, there's a question how much the Samaritan woman understands, but she does witness and she brings people along and it's a very different kind of story. That's right. I think that's exactly right. And what's really interesting about it is, I mean, it, the, the text goes to great pains to kind of spell out why this encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan woman is so uh, out of the ordinary or unexpected or kind of problematic, kind of socially and, and, and culturally. Yeah. What, what do we know about the relationship between Samaritans and Jews. I mean, John tells us at one point that they don't have much to do with each other. They do not share, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. But what do we know about this group called the Samaritans and how they relate to other Jews? Well, we know a little bit. Um, They're sort of situated in northern Israel and it seems like that the, you know, difficult relationship between Jews and Samaritans goes back to a time of exile. Samaritans are associated with um, Assyrians who invaded that northern part of Israel and perhaps stayed. And so, um, you know, there was intermarriage. So they're considered sort of not true Jews because they didn't keep their line pure. I mean, that's problematic language in the contemporary world. But that's And and it seems even if you go back and read like Nehemiah 6 and stuff, there was the Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So one of the contentions is around where you worship and the fact that they did not support the rebuilding of the temple and we have stories in Josephus, who's a historian who talks about Samaritans putting you know, bones in the temple to pollute it and then Jews burning down Samaritan villages, which, 
I mean, we don't know how absolutely accurate that is, but it suggests there is a long tradition yeah, of, of, com- of conflict and antipathy in some ways. Yeah. So it, I think it's Two Kings 17, isn't it? Is the yes. kind of foundation story of how S- Samaria as a region becomes associated with this kind of Assyrian settlement. That's right. Um, yep. And uh, and then an ongoing history of some kind of antipathy and ongoing conflict and rival cultic sites so mount gerizim over against mount jerusalem and um, i mean it goes all the way to a different version of the pentateuch that they end up with and all sorts of other things as well so and much more pentateuchally focused it seems like their scriptural tradition stopped with the pentateuch and so um was focused on that text that talks about um you know build the altar in mount gerizim and but not but not the temple tradition so I mean, at one level we could read this story and it's interesting for its sort of historical religious dialogue um, as a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman and they do have a big detailed conversation in the middle of our scene about where you worship and who says what. I I think if that's all we read in the story, we've missed the much larger point. But John gives us some of that context, I think. Yeah, well, John's gospel um, constantly does this, I think, is that there are always at least two, if not three, layers of meaning operating. So there's this kind of layer of the actual encounter itself, a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. Um, there's, There's a trend in the scholarship to think that almost every encounter between two people in the gospel is probably also reflecting an encounter between two communities a bit later on in early Christian history. So Nicodemus and Jesus start to speak to each other in the first and second person plurals in in that conversation. (laughs) So they kind of become community figures or heads of communities. Um, And, I mean, we don't know much about the relationship between early Christian groups and Samaritan groups, but potentially there's some of that kind of going on. But then there's this other thing in John. Everywhere you look, there is this kind of metaphorical, um, uh, when I teach this, I sometimes use the word mythical. I think there's a kind of mythical Mm. dimension to the story that it's not just about these two people or these two communities. It's actually about human life in general, truth in general, uh, what it means to live in the world uh, in general. And I think um, for me, the the most uh, obvious point of that is just this initial dialogue that happens around the theme of water so the woman uh jesus says give me a drink mm-hmm. um and the woman says i i don't have a bucket so i can't give you a drink um unless she's in the first edition of the good news bible where they gave an illustration of this scene where which had the quotation underneath sir i have no bucket and there in the illustration the line drawings was Her a line a with a bucket on the end of it so um <laughs> Uh, they corrected it in the second edition. Oh, good. The um, so she doesn't have a bucket. She can't give him water. And then Jesus flips it back onto her to say, "If you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who who I am, asking you for a drink, um, you would have said, give me living water.'" And the woman thinks that by living water, Jesus simply means running water, a stream. Yes. Yeah, so that's a play on words, so it's right? A play on living words, and running, absolutely. Yep. So it's it's immersed in the very human encounter in mm. the story. But actually the phrase living water, of course, is a way in John of evoking all sorts of motifs of life, of the gift of the Spirit. Yep. It connects with what Jesus says later on in John chapter 7 about the Spirit um, and uh, rivers of living water. Yeah, um, exactly. And stuff around the crucifixion where water comes out of Jesus' side, etc., etc., etc. So this, this kind of cosmic, mythical, metaphorical, yep. symbolic layer is always at work, I think, in the Gospel of John. 
Yeah, exactly. And we see that, I mean, and of course this is, we'll get to Exodus in a moment, but this is also, you know, remembering these texts of recalling Old Testament traditions of, right. of water and surprising. So water is a gift of God, yep. right, that come, you know, symbol of life in deathly places, all of that. The other thing we should talk about, though, is this well, because yeah. that's another Old Testament, you know. So one of the ways, and please don't do this, uh, one of the ways this story has been interpreted in the tradition is that when Jesus says you've you've had five husbands, mm. you know, um, and we should say in John's Gospel, Jesus often has special knowledge, mm. right? This is one of the Johannine themes we yeah. get where Jesus has this sort of, you know, superhuman insight, yeah. and for her, it's a sign he's a prophet. Um, but this has there is a history of interpretation that says, well, this is about pointing out how sinful she is and how promiscuous she is. None of that's there in the text. It, I think there's a couple of ways we could read it. Um, one of them is he's naming her very real human circumstance, with which from what we know of women and marriage in the ancient world, might have had nothing. She could have had several husbands die and she's been passed around brothers and she's had no agency and, in fact, this is just tragic for Mm. her. Mm. Um, But the other way is a very symbolic one around wells. Yeah, absolutely. So you get the idea here that um, what we have here is a betrothal scene Mm. and the betrothal scenes in the book of Genesis, for example, are all related to the stories of the patriarchs who are symbolic representations of the nation of Israel themselves. Um, And so here we get to this thing about, well, maybe this isn't just two individuals, maybe this is kind of two communities. How do they relate to each other? And what's striking to me is in that 2 Kings 17 reference that I mentioned before, Um, it tells us explicitly that the region of Samaria is settled from five different parts of the Assyrian Empire, five Mm. different cities. Uh, People are settled in order to intermarry with the Samaritans. So this notion of marital infidelity and the number five may well be operating symbolically. And if you read the commentaries on uh, John 4, I mean, they are mostly all written by men and isn't it just a trope that when men read the story of yeah. a woman um, like this, a bit like the woman caught in adultery. It well, must be her it, fault. It must be her yeah, fault. Yeah, it exactly. must be uh, her sinfulness that has caused this situation and that yeah. Jesus is pointing out. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that sort of points out, again, this is another layer we can read, is is at one level this story is all about revealing Jesus' identity. Yeah. Right? So he goes from the Jewish man asking at one level a very human question, give me a drink. He has this special knowledge about her circumstances and she starts naming him as a prophet. And then she'll go and run back to her community and pose the question, you know, he's not the Messiah, is he? That's right. And it's posed in a way in Greek that is not a confession. Yeah. It's actually like he can't be the Messiah, Well, right? it's a kind of very hesitant confession. Mm. So um, uh, in, in Greek there are two ways of asking a question, and depending on what word you use, you can ask a question to expect the answer yes or to expect the answer no. And this is a question expecting the answer no. So the NRSV translates, <clears throat> um, uh, he can't be the Messiah, can he, or something along those lines. Yeah. She's really expecting them to say, no, of course he isn't. Co- yeah, of course he <clears throat> can't be. Wait. But but even the raising of the question is itself some kind of form of initial confession. And I, I think, think it, it then opens up this possibility that others, um, it's enough of a confession to draw other people to take her testimony seriously. <clears throat> and then, of course, what they do is they encounter Jesus and they believe for themselves in a, in a different kind of a way. Yeah. I think, it, yeah, and it's it's a lovely side image of like she is, she is a witness and the kind of maybe the first evangelist to the Samaritans in this story, 
but it's imperfect. It's not that she has the faith and okay. she's got it all worked out. She's she's posing a question and say, and the come and see is the exact same language we get earlier in the call stories. Come and see. So there's echoes here in the text. All, and, all, all disciples in the fourth gospel are imperfect in some way. The the person yes. that you need to take seriously in answer to the question, who is Jesus, is Jesus. What Jesus says about himself is the thing that really, really counts. So when Jesus in verse 26 says, I am he, he's using a kind of recognition formula, I'm the person you've been talking about. But the Greek phrase is ego amy, which is this term of Christological confession in the fourth gospel that um, certainly aligns Jesus with God in a unique and a highly distinctive way. Yes, yeah, so we've got that revelation of identity, we've got the Messiah stuff, and then the passage ends up with the entire town basically proclaiming um, that he is truly the saviour of the world in yep. verse 42. Yep. Again, only place in John that the word saviour is used, um, but the world we know from John, you know, for God so loved the world, right? So this is the sense, you know, we, we have this, what I think is a huge confession now in the mouths of the Samaritans. And that's what's taken the story out of the personal encounter or the community relations question yep. of Israel, Samaria, to this kind of comprehensive and uh, cosmic vision of, you know, God's ultimate loving purposes in relation to the the whole world, the yeah. whole of creation, which, of course, is where the gospel begins in the opening of the prologue. Um, yeah. In yeah. the beginning was the word who created all things. Mm. So maybe we'll come and pick up some of these threads when we talk about preaching themes, but may, it, it's probably time to move on to Exodus 17. <laughs> If you'd like to know more about By the Well or any of our hosts, please visit bythewell.com.au. So, Exodus chapter 17, let's loop back into the Hebrew Bible, and we are in the wilderness, suitable for the season of Lent. And we are in the wilderness of... It says sin here, but my memory for the Hebrew is it's actually a shin, um, so I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. But we're in uh, a wilderness and the journey of the Israelites is ongoing. What happens, Robin, in uh, chapter 17? Well, we we get this picture of um, great grumbling and discontent, which we get quite a bit in Exodus. (laughs) (laughs) But this case, again, water theme connects these passages. It's particularly around water. The people are quarrelling with uh, Moses, give us water to drink, Um, and he reframes that back to them as why are you testing the Lord, kind of uh, where's your faith. And we should say that's framed in verse 1, they're they're journeying through as the Lord commanded, we're Mm. told. So this is is not Moses' direction, this is God's direction. Um, But then the people – so, I mean – if you're listening because you're a leader of a congregation um, or a community somewhere, this it can be a heartening passage that leadership is tough and the people can turn against you. And Moses at one point fears for his life. Yeah. He, he goes to God and says, they're about to stone me. Like, yeah. I'm, um, I'm done for. What I are mean, you doing? Moses does that thing of taking critique of him and kind of saying, well, if you're doing that, then somehow you're questioning the Lord, which can be a, a problematic <laughs> move to make. Yes. Um, but nonetheless, it's pretty clear that um, – it's the, it's the command of the Lord to enter into this period of wilderness wandering that is the source of the, the, the grievance. I mean, the movement is that in chapter 14 they escape from Egypt. Mm. Chapter 15 opens with this glory, these glorious songs of celebration, of yes. deliverance, you yep. know, the song of Miriam and the song of Moses, the song of victory, and then immediately move to 
Complaint. Complaint. So celebration and complaint are the kind of hallmarks of <laughs> um, this, this, this period of time. And the first complaint actually relates to the provision of water at Mara, which mm. is bitter. So that the, they get bitter water. Yep. And that leads them to say, well, we, we shouldn't have even have left. Why the hell did yep. we even leave? We should be back there and it would be better to die in Egypt than to, to be here. So we get these kind of cyclical patterns mm. of um, complaint and then effectively divine provision manna yeah. quails and now um water um but what's remembered about it is this idea that the complaint was some form of testing of god yeah and i mean so you know i think the lectionary has put these readings together because of the water symbolism so this this miracle of striking a rock and, and the water that comes out would be living water in that it's running water yeah. right um this is the great sign but i think again um you know in terms of preaching, probably symbolic. You know, it's this divine provision. It's it's the presence of God in the unlikely place of the wilderness that is shown time and time again through Moses and his leadership. That that God is even here. Yeah. You know, you're, you're complaining, and the question at the end is, is the Lord among us or not? Mm. Which I think is probably the key question if you're going to preach this text. Mm. Which is, you know, well, it, it doesn't look like we thought. Yeah, that's you know. right. The testing, I think, is this. The, the testing is. The people want God to behave in a way that conforms to their own expectations about what God should do and what God should provide and what should be made yep. possible for them. And in in that questioning of whether God is kind of delivering what we need from God, mm. um, they're actually uh, basically framing not just the testing, but they're framing this question about, well, whether God actually exists or not or whether, whether God is even there or accompanying yeah, them. that's right. And I think, I mean, I would have stuck this passage with the reading about the temptations in Matthew chapter 4, where, of course, um, do not put the Lord your God to the test <laughs> is exactly alluding to this uh, this passage. Um, and, of course, but it, it's enti- what it suggests is the passage is entirely appropriate for Lent. Yep. When you're in this place where you know that there is that, that God has done something to deliver and to save us, but you're on a journey towards some future promise, some future hope, where there's struggle and there's suffering and things aren't clear and then there's hardship, what is it, what is it that you do? What's the nature of a faithful response? And yeah. the testing of the Lord that we see here is one thing and what Jesus does in the wilderness is a kind of counterpoint yes. um, to that who constantly, of course, um, recognises God's presence with him even in those difficult moments. Yeah, and in the midst of all of that is the, you know, that, that biblical theme of God appears in these unlikely places, Absolutely. whether it's this encounter by the well in John's gospel or here, water from a rock. But, and, provi- but, and provide and, somehow in yep, some way yep. for you. Absolutely. Yep. But that might be a nice segue. We're going to get some endurance and suffering in uh, Romans <laughs> 5, although maybe not the main point of the passage, but let's move over to Romans. Okay. So this week we begin a bit of a stint in Romans that we get uh, throughout Lent, uh, starting here in Chapter 5. And we have recorded, uh, Sean and I, a special, I mean mostly Sean because he's the Roman specialist, (laughs) me asking Sean questions, a special episode giving you a bit of a Romans 101. So if you'd like a bit of a fuller background on Romans and you're thinking of preaching Romans, I would direct you to that from last week. but Sean, just give us a quick kind of where are we and what's going on when we get to chapter 5, verse 1. Okay, well, Romans 5, in my view, marks a pretty major transition in the argument of Romans. 
Um, Romans 1 to 4 seems to have been largely focused on, I, I think, the issue that in um, the other episode I'll say it, it is the kind of underlying issue for Paul's writing to this church. And the issue is the relationship between um, Jewish Christ believers and Gentile Christ or pagan Christ believers and the conflict that exists between them. So the first four chapters are really an exploration of how it is and on what basis um, both Jews and pagans come into the Christian community on the same basis because ultimately they all share in the same fundamental problem to which the gospel is some kind of a solution. Um, So Paul spends four chapters doing that and the climax of that argument is, and we know that this is true because it actually makes sense of what God already had promised to Abraham. Yeah, Classic argument, right? We have it in Galatians 3 and we have it in Romans 4. Um, Gentiles aren't brought into some brand new community that God creates. Gentiles, pagans are brought into the community of Abraham as Abraham's descendants on the basis of faith rather than uh, works of the law. Yep, and that long covenant. So that long covenant, that's right. So that's what that's all about. And then in chapter 5, what's really interesting about chapters 5 to 8 of Romans is that Jews and Gentiles almost disappear as categories. Yes, yeah. So here we have Romans 5 opening with... Since therefore we are justified by faith, that's what I've just described. This Mm. language of justification relates particularly to this Jew-Gentile question. Since we're justified by faith and not by law or circumcision or any of those other things, um, well, then we start running into an immediate translation problem. There are two ways of translating 5.1b. The worst one, I think, and the wrong one is... um, Since we are justified by faith, let us have peace with God. And what that makes this section is a kind of exhortation to moral behavior or righteousness, what used to be described as sanctification. Yes, so let us be peaceable kind of people. Or, or, you know, we're we're to live out this peace that God has established. And what that means is that Romans 1 to 4 is salvation and Romans 5 to 8 is holiness. Yes, but I don't think that's what's happening. Good, good. <laughs> I think that what's happening is that Paul is now saying this Jew-Gentile justification thing is actually part of an even bigger framework of understanding what salvation is. Um, and it's described in a number of images in this um, uh, passage, one of which is having peace with God, um, obtaining access to grace, God's love being poured into our hearts, and then ultimately this vision of reconciliation which for Paul is a cosmic notion. God reconciles the world to God's self, and within that, of course, reconciles human beings who are in some kind of enmity um, with God. And that basically unleashes a cascade of different metaphors, images, ways of thinking about what it means to live in this story of God's reconciliation of the cosmos, ending, of course, at the end of chapter 8 with nothing can separate us from the love of God nothing in heaven or yeah, on earth, this cosmic sense. vision. Yeah, and I mean, look, this is such a theologically dense passage that I think, you know, people might be a bit nervous to preach from it, but maybe pick up one of these threads and tease it out or something. I, I want to slow us down because, I mean, this language of just the NRSV has justified, yep. which becomes a very theologically loaded word, but not one we otherwise use very much anymore, I don't think. 
Well, well we oh. should we should use it a lot more. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, ma- mainstream Protestantism, ironically, given that it's founded on the doctrine of justification yeah. by faith, is remarkably reluctant to talk about it or think about it much mm-hmm. of the time. Yep. Um, but so, what's other language we can give this? Like well, a making right, <clears throat> a kind of a like, yeah. What's what's another way to? Well, here's the way I summarise it for students. There are basically three ways of thinking about it. The first way is um, it's about the declaring of innocence. Mm-hmm. So you're guilty, and God says that you're now innocent. Yep. And there are whole theories of atonement that relate to that innocence and yep. guilt and law court imagery, what we yes. often call a forensic model. Yep. Uh, the second way of thinking about it is about covenant inclusion, um, that you didn't belong to God's family, uh, covenant family through Abraham, but now you do belong. So to be made righteous is to be brought into the covenant, into Abraham's family, which is very consistent with what Paul has argued mm. in chapters 1 to 4. And the third way of thinking about it places much more emphasis on the notion that righteousness and justification is fundamentally about what God does. And so we have this language of God putting something right Mm. or God right-wising or God righteousing something. And so it's a way of talking about saving power or deliverance or liberation from slavery or some other image. Um, And this leads us to what we often call the apocalyptic reading of Paul. Yep. Now, all three of those ideas are kind of there in and out of the chapter, the chapters of Romans. For me, it's actually the last of those that provides the main lens through which we read the others. And the reason for this is that Paul, at the beginning of Romans, speaks about the gospel revealing the righteousness of God. And the language of righteousness is completely connected to the language of justification. Righteousness yeah. is the thing that God does. Justification is the thing that happens to us because of what God has done. Yes, and we should point out in Greek it's the, it's a play on the same root. Same, so in, the same root. The relationship between those couple of terms Absolutely. is much clearer in Greek. Yep. So if the righteousness of God is God's saving power and in delivering in the enslaved cosmos, yep. then justification is our incorporation into that salvation okay. and that new reality, what Paul elsewhere will call uh, the new creation. The so interesting sit, thing yeah. in all of those is, um, you know, you've emphasised for us that, you know, in Paul's thought, this is God's action, mm. right? You know, this is, it, uh, you know, we sometimes have sort of, I think, unhelpful <laughs> interpretations and preaching of these sorts of pa- yeah. passages that put it back on the human and go, well, you just need to have enough faith and you'll be right with God. Paul flips that around. God's done this. You are already, you're declared right with God. That's right. This has already happened. God has already achieved this in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The new creation is already a reality. And so having peace with God, Mm. being reconciled, is about living into the reality of this past salvation that has already been achieved. Although Paul still has room for the idea that it's yet to be completed. It's yet to be Mm. fully realized. Um, But we are immersed in it. Why? And what's the sign that we're immersed in it? Well, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given us. The gift of the Spirit is the sign that we now participate in this new reality. Yep. And then the last thing I want to ask you about uh, in our last few minutes is this language of reconciliation Mm -hmm. we get to in verse 10, uh, which, of course, in the Australian context has such particular resonances. We tend to use the word... um, nationally a reconciliation around indigenous and non-indigenous australians um and it can be complicated right because we often want to leap to the injured party should just forgive or or whatever um so is there a way that this can help us think through those sorts of issues and what reconciliation actually 
is here and yeah. in terms of the actor yeah. and the power dynamics and so i think there are a couple of things maybe to say that the first is is that it is very clear that for paul the initiative for reconciliation lies with with god, god. so um so and god is capable of initiating reconciliation as the injured party if you like i mean that's mm. the wrong phrase but the 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 um in a situation of hostility, God yep. is capable of doing that in a way that clearly human beings aren't straightforwardly. I mean, no, it, it's because right. God's love is God's love that God is capable of initiating this in different kinds of ways. So um, so whatever we talk about when we talk about social reconciliation or political reconciliation or horizontal reconciliation within a framework of Christian theology, that's always a working out of the implications of what this vertical divine reconciliation is and looks like. But perhaps recognising, if I can pause there, you know, in Paul's worldview, yes, God is the injured party. We've done wrong. We've strayed from God kind of thing. Um, But we need to be careful not to then apply that as normative for humans because you're saying there's a key distinction. Absolutely. And so we do not expect the injured party to be the ones who lean forward and forgive. No. I mean, ultimately we're hoping for forgiveness but not without some working towards. And this, I think, is the second thing. Um, Traditional Protestant theologies of salvation are very good at emphasising God has done this you know, now now you're innocent. Now you don't have to worry. Mm. Now you don't have to do anything. God saved you. You know, the the, the, the relationship has been restored and reconciled. Yeah. But in Paul's world, any language about the reconciliation of two parties does not leave the party that has been reconciled with nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, the language of grace is exactly the same. The exchange of grace in the ancient world always implies the need for some kind of response, some kind of action, some kind of um, reciprocation from the party to whom the gift has been given. Yep. And uh, so when Paul writes about salvation, salvation, we sometimes talk about it as unconditional. Yeah. And what we mean by that is we don't do anything to deserve it. Yeah, which is that classic line, right, in verse 8, God proves his love that that's while right. we were still sinners. So that's we didn't right. do anything to did, earn or deserve right. this. Yep. But unconditional can easily lead us to the conclusion that we don't have to do anything yes. after it's happened. Yes. We, we can just kind of get on as we were before. Which Paul would be rolling in his Horrified grave. Horrified by. <laughs> um, and the best discussion of this is, I mean, John Barclay's recent yeah. work on grace in Paul's letters where he makes the distinction between a form of salvation and grace that is unconditioned it's not mm. dependent on our worth, but that doesn't mean it's unconditional. That doesn't mean that there's not the full expectation that there is um, appropriate action, behaviour, a ministry of reconciliation yeah. that we are to engage with as a consequence of God's reconciling of us. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sean. That's a a dense but extremely helpful <laughs> way to think, you know, and then from reconciliation back to this, you know, I like your interpretation better, the, the declarative we have peace, not let us make peace, but That's of course right. with the implication that we should then be peacemakers. That's right. It d- doesn't mean that doesn't flow. Um, any last thoughts in Lent 3? I feel like there's so many riches in this week that you could preach on, so probably either would you pull them together? Do you see common threads? Well, or, or? I think you can pull through um, from Exodus to Romans. You can pull out the kind of suffering, endurance, yep. hope um, narrative. Um, from Exodus to John, you can pick out the kind of divine provision in a situation of wilderness or yep. um, those kinds of things. But overall, Lent is a time for, I think, explicit attention to the question of 
what it means for God's love to actually be encountered by us in the real world of our human situation and suffering. And all three passages allude to that in some way or another. Yep. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.